0: If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've begun a new sermon series highlighting the power of an invitation. You know, there's great blessing and power in an invitation. When you get invited to a Christmas party or a birthday party or any kind of party, you're, you know, you're excited because you're like, Wow, I was, I was chosen. I was invited. I'm wanted. Or maybe you're in college and you get invited to join a particular fraternity or a particular sorority. And you're like, oh wow, I'm wanted, I'm needed. It's exciting, it's it's transformative. Some invitations can be truly transformative. And as we've been going through the Gospels, we've been looking at the transformative, powerful, blessed invitation that Jesus made to so many different people. Some most unexpected people, some unlikely characters that Jesus invited to have them follow him. Two weeks ago, Kim began this sermon series by looking at the, the call that Jesus made to four smelly fishermen, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, to, to come and, and follow him. Last week, we looked at the call that Jesus gave to Levi, a tax collector of all people, and, and how Levi left everything, his, his uh, profitable government job, and he left it all to, to follow Jesus. But as he began to follow Jesus, he had a party of his own. Levi had a, a party of his own, and he invited all of his friends his tax-collecting friends, because that's the only friends tax collectors had, right? Were other tax collectors. Nobody liked tax collectors. We don't like them that much now, but they really hated them back then. He invited the tax-collecting friends that he had to come to a party, come in and meet Jesus. And so this Advent, like Levi, we want to encourage everyone as a part of our church to invite a friend. Invite a coworker, a classmate, a neighbor, a family member to, to come and, and join us in the Christmas celebration. As I was doing some research on the power of an invitation, it was interesting, I, I came across a book I'd read many years ago, a couple years ago, it was called The, the Unchurched Next Door by Tom Rayner. Now Tom Rayner was the CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources, they did a nationwide survey, interviewed people from every state in the United States, every unchurched person they could contact across the United States, and they had this remarkable discovery, they said, if invited, And accompanied, so you invite your friend and you say, Hey, come join me, I'll take you to church, I'll I'll bring you with me. If invited and accompanied, 82% of the unchurched people who don't go to church, 82% of them are open to attending a church with a friend. 82% of the unchurched people they interviewed said, I'd be willing to go to church if I was invited by a friend and they went with me. Isn't that remarkable? which is actually not that surprising because, well, a few years ago, we did a survey of our own. We interviewed all of the new members who had joined our church over a three-year period, and we asked each one of them, what was it that brought you to First Presbyterian Church? Was it our webpage, which is a pretty good webpage? Was it some of the billboards we've done? Was it some mailers we've done? 99% of the people, in fact, everyone except one person, said they came to our church because someone personally invited them still today, the most effective way to get someone to come to church, to join us in worship, to be a part of the body of Christ here at First Pres, is through personal invitation. And we want to do all that we can to, to invite others to, to join us. Again, this week, as I was doing some research on in the importance of invitation, I came across this little comic strip I'd like to share with you. It's kind of funny. Church office. If telemarketers call, invite them to church They'll probably quit calling. If you keep inviting them, they say, hey, you know, I'm trying to sell you. So, oh, no, well, you come to church and we'll talk about it. You know, they probably won't come. But, but, you know, we need to do all that we can to reach out to everybody we can. Because as we read the Gospels, we can see that Jesus, well, he reached out to everyone. All kinds of people. The people that the religious elite thought that, that were very far from God. Those are the kinds of people that, that Jesus sought out, invited them to come and follow him. Invited them and reached out to let them know. God loves them. To see what I'm talking about, please turn in your Red Pew Bibles uh, to the Gospel of John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. It may be found on page 1131 of your Red Pew Bible. I would really encourage you to take that Red Pew Bible. You're going to want to follow along as I, I read kind of a long text, and as I'm reading uh, the text, I'm going to take breaks in the middle to kind of help illuminate maybe what the text is saying. But John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42 found on page 1131 of that Red Pew Bible. But before we read God's word, before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you inspired John to write these words. To tell this important story of this important conversation that Jesus had with the most unlikely character. And how through this story, we are able to see even more how much you love each one of us. So God, I pray that as we read this familiar story, that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, listen to God's word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. I want to pause there just for a moment. The text says he had to pass through Samaria. Did he really have to pass through Samaria? We actually I have a map I want to show you. It, it illustrates the path that most pious, righteous Jews would take if they wanted to travel from Judea to Galilee. Judea was in the south, Galilee was in the north. And most pious, righteous Jews, as illustrated by that right dotted line, would go around Samaria. Because Samaria was a part of the old northern kingdom of Israel that was conquered in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And at that point, many uh, Jews from the northern kingdom of Jerusalem were were deported and many Assyrians were brought in. And the Assyrians and the Jews began to uh, intermarry, uh, the Israelites began to intermarry. And they were viewed, the Samaritans viewed in the first century as, you know, half-breed heretics. They were not pious Jews. They did not worship God on the right mountain, in the right way, in the right place. No, they were half-breed heretics. And every Jew knew that, well, bad company corrupts good character. And so most Jews would go to great lengths to make sure they didn't even interact with the Samaritan by going around Samaria rather than going through Samaria. But the text says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, geographically, it makes sense. It's the quickest Uh, way to get to Galilee, right? The quickest distance between two points is a straight line. It's kind of a curved line, but nonetheless, that seems to be the quickest way. But Jesus goes, not because it's the quickest way. Jesus has to go through Samaria because he's got a divine appointment, a divine appointment with someone special. To see who that is, let's keep reading. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I want to pause there just for a moment. It was the sixth hour. That's high noon for them. For them, the day began at sunrise. That's around 6 a.m., sixth hour would would take you to about 12 o'clock. High noon, heat of the day. And yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. as, as a human, he, he was wearied, he was tired, he was thirsty. And so he sits down at Jacob's well, waiting for a drink, but also waiting to meet someone that he wants to give something to. To see who that person is, let's continue reading our text. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Notice that she comes during the heat of the day. No one else is at the well. This woman from Samaria comes during the heat of the day, most likely because she wants to avoid interacting with others. So she comes to the well outside of Sychar, Jacob's well, which was outside of town in the heat of the day when nobody else would hopefully be there. But when she gets there, Jesus is waiting for her. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know, Jesus doesn't care too much about social expectations or social norms, does he? If you read through the gospels you'll see that time and time again Jesus doesn't really care what other people think. He wants to do God's will. He, he follows the promptings of the Father, is guided by the Spirit, and he does what God wants him to do. And, and yes, this woman is right. She's right to say that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans because most Jews condemned Samaritans. And this woman is a little suspicious of why Jesus, a Jewish man who, who's become known to be quite holy, would want to drink from her, a Samaritan woman who has a different reputation. But Jesus is waiting for her because he has something special he wants to give to her. Let's see what that is. Let's continue our reading. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, The woman said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, "'and the well is deep. "'Where do you get this living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob? "'He gave us the well and drank from it himself, "'as did his sons and his livestock.' "'Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water "'will be thirsty again. "'But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him "'will never be thirsty again.' I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I want to pause there just for a moment conversation's getting just a little tense with the Samaritan woman he's just asked her to go call her husband and she confesses well I don't have a husband and then Jesus this Jewish man born in Bethlehem a carpenter raised in Nazareth who's just recently been in Jerusalem who's never met this woman before begins to reveal to her things that she would think only people from Sychar would know about her that she is not only the man is she with not her husband, but she's in fact had five husbands. Now that's a lot of husbands. In fact, first century rabbinical teachings condemns anyone who would have more than three marriages. That was the max. And she's had five husbands. Now I know that the temptation for all of us is to read this text and, and really just dismiss this woman as promiscuous and say, well, she's all got all kinds of sins. She's just a promiscuous woman. But let's just take a step back, and notice what the text says. The text says she's had five husbands, and the man she's now with is not her husband. Did all five of these marriages end in divorce? Maybe, but not likely. I mean, chances are, perhaps one of these marriages, well, they actually ended in the death of her spouse, and so she would have become a widow and struggling in the first century to make her way in a patriarchal society where it would be difficult for a woman to live on her own. Yes, There's a chance, a good chance, that maybe one of these marriages actually ended well in the death of her spouse. And she knows the pain of, of losing a spouse to death. But probably some of these marriages did, in fact, end in divorce. But were all of these divorces her fault? Did you, was she the one who filed for divorce in the first century? Most likely not. You see, in the first century in Palestine, it was usually the man who would file for divorce. So not only has this woman probably had the experience of, of losing a husband to death and, and suffered the grief that comes with losing a spouse, but she's also experienced the, the pain of rejection of having her spouse leave her, file for divorce from her, saying, I no longer want you. So now she's in pain, alone. But she's not really alone. No, she's found another man that she's now with who's not her husband. And so clearly she's not living according to to God's word, God's direction for relationships. For in Hebrews 13, verse 4, according to the New American Standard Version of the Bible, which is the most literal word-for-word translation of the Bible in English, Hebrews 13.4 says this, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This woman faces pending judgment, maybe because of her failed marriages, but most likely because, well, she's living in sin today with a man who's not her husband. And we know from the very words of Jesus in Mark 10, verse 6 to 9, that, well, that God's intention is that, was that marriage would, would, would last a lifetime. In Mark 10, Jesus is asked about divorce. And in quoting Genesis chapter 2, he helps illustrate God's original intention for marriage. In Mark 10, verse 6 to 9, Jesus says these words, For from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. If you do a search on the word divorce in the Bible, you'll actually find in Malachi, chapter 2, verse 16, that God says he hates divorce. God's intention is that every marriage would last a lifetime, that a man and a woman would come together in holy matrimony, and that marriage would last a lifetime. But in Jesus' day, in this woman's life, many of her marriages didn't last a lifetime, did they? Now, I know there are many different reasons for divorce, and as one who does many weddings, you know, i Counsel couples before they get married, and I've, I've done weddings that have actually ended in divorce. But I can tell you this every time I do premarital counseling, every time I do a wedding, every bride and every groom has every intention of, of staying married for a lifetime. But things happen. Things happen. And people get divorced. But no one wants a divorce because it's so painful. It's taking two people who've become one and tearing them apart. Yes, this woman has had five husbands. She's known the pain probably of losing a spouse to death, but she's certainly probably known the the pain of seeing a marriage end in divorce being rejected by her spouse, no longer loved. And and so now she's probably reaching out to whoever will love her. And she's found a man who's not her husband. And yes, she's living in sin, but, but she's living in pain, living in shame. But notice, notice in our text that while she comes to this well to be alone, to avoid the gossip of other women who in the town probably talk about the woman who's had five husbands and the man she's now with is not her husband. She makes every effort to, to avoid the women. She goes to the, goes to the well that's outside of Sychar. In fact, some archeologists have done some digging in the city of Sychar and they've actually discovered that there was a well inside the town. If somehow she needed water, she could have gone, you know, it's like, man, it's noon, it's hot, it's thirsty. It would have been most convenient for her to go to the well that was in the town, but that's where everybody would have been. She makes every effort to to go to the well outside the town because of the shame and the pain she's living in, and she feels alone. But when she gets to the well, she finds she's not alone. Now, God doesn't abandon her or us in our sin. God has sent his son, Jesus, to love us in spite of our sin. That's the message of the Christmas story that God loves us so much that he doesn't abandon us. No, God loves us so much that he actually becomes one of us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, the word made flesh as he wrote a moment ago in John chapter 1. He's the word made flesh who's, who grew up among us and he taught us and he healed us and ultimately he demonstrated his great love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died on a cross as that perfect sacrifice for our sins. And we're told in Scripture very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. For Paul writes these words, For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus meets this woman in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her shame, and he lets her know that she's loved. How does he do this? By offering her living water. Notice in the text that she offers her the living water before he calls her to repent. He offers her the living water And then he lets her know that he knows all about her life, and all about her pain, and all about her shame, and all about her sin, and he doesn't rescind that offer of living water. No, he offers that living water, that grace, that love, before he calls her to change. Letting her know that he loves her, and he has something he wants to give to her in spite of her sin. Now, what is this living water exactly? Well, Jesus uses the term later in the Gospel of John in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. He talks about living water. When it says this, John 7, verse 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this... He said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. By John 7, Jesus has not yet been crucified. He hasn't yet been raised from the dead. He has not yet sent his Holy Spirit upon his disciples and breathed on them, as we read about in the latter part of John. No, but he's promising, us that if we will come to him, that he will give him living water. He will give him that Holy Spirit who will flow to eternal life that will transform us from the inside out so that we become the kind of people who bear the fruits of the Spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As Jesus offers us this living water, if we will simply come to him in faith, and, and he offers the living water to us as he offers it to this woman, not once we've repented, but, but he offers it to us in advance. Letting us know that his love is greater than our sin. Letting this Samaritan woman at the well know that, that he loves her, even though he knows what she's done. That he knows everything about her, he knows everything about us, and he loves us anyway. And so he offers us living water. We will simply come to him. Notice the woman's response to this great offer. Once he's helped her see that he knows her and knows everything about her, and he loves her anyway. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but as you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, they're sitting at the base of that mountain, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar And went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can he be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps, I sent you to reap, For that which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at verses 28 to 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and told the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Notice this woman's response to the words of Jesus. She leaves her water jar. She, she went to the well outside of town in the heat of the day to get some water. But she, she's so overwhelmed by joy, so excited by what Jesus has revealed to her, that she leaves it all and she goes back to the town the town where she had made great efforts to avoid the people previously by going to the well during the heat of the day, she goes back to this very same town and begins to tell all these people that previously she had tried to avoid, she tells all these people, come and see, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What a remarkable response to the words of Jesus. Because she's gone to great efforts to avoid these very same people who previously had condemned her because she's, well, she's had five husbands and the man she's now with is not her husband. And yet she goes into the town and says, come, come and see this man who told me everything that I ever did. What kind of things did did Jesus tell her? Did he tell her about the time she was homecoming queen or valedictorian or best in class or most likely to succeed? No, that's not her story. What he told her was about her sin. That she's had five husbands, and the man she's now with is not her husband. If you were to encounter Jesus today at Jacob's well, what would he say to you? What sin would he highlight for you? What, which one of the seven deadly sins maybe would he, he highlight for you? That are maybe a sin you wrestle with today or a sin of your past Which one of these seven would he choose? Maybe pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. Maybe there's some other sin that Jesus would would bring to your mind, to bring to your memory if he were to encounter you at Jacob's well. What sin would would he bring to your mind and point out to you when you encountered him at Jacob's well? Have you thought about it? Did that sin come to mind? Okay, go ahead and just turn to your neighbor and share that if you could. <laughs> I love the nerv- nervous laughter. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Of course you wouldn't do that. Because that's between you and, well, nobody knows about that except you and, and Jesus. Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing. There's nothing we can hide from Jesus. And the good news of this text, the good news of the gospel that Jesus, He knows everything about us. He knows all about our sins, our past and our present sins. And He loves us anyway. We have never been unloved. Now, how can we be so sure? How can we be so sure that if Jesus knew my sin or your sin, maybe some of our sins are worse than the Samaritan woman's sin. What if Jesus, how can we be so sure that Jesus who knows everything still loves me in spite of my sin? How can we be so sure that Jesus knows everything about me, even my sin, and he loves me anyway? How do I know that Jesus loves me? Well, my son is named John because John's my favorite book in the Bible. John the Baptist is one of my favorite characters. And if you're not sure whether or not Jesus loves you, I would encourage you after this service to read the rest of John's gospel. Because as you read through the story of John's gospel, you're gonna see that in John 15, after Judas has gone away and left the upper room to go and betray Jesus, Jesus says to his disciples that there is no greater love than this, than a man who is willing to die for his friends. Jesus is predicting his own death and as you read the story, you'll see that yes, Judas betrays Jesus, and, and Peter denies knowing Jesus three different times, and all of his disciples scatter in fear, and, and Jesus is ultimately flogged and he's crucified on a cross like a common criminal. He who was without sin suffered on a cross for all of our sins. And there's no greater love than that. Jesus lets us see at the cross that his love for us is greater than our sin. For as he dies on the cross with his final words in the Gospel of John chapter 19, he says, it is finished. Letting us know that the death of Jesus on the cross was not happen chance. it wasn't simple circumstance, it wasn't just bad luck, no, it was all a part of God's divine plan so that our sins could be atoned for, so that God could communicate clearly just how much... He loves us. Not this much. This much. Unconditionally, sacrificially. Yes, the gospel helps us see that we have never been unloved. You know, about a month ago, Michael W. Smith, who's one of my favorite musicians, came to town and He's, he performed at the Emerald Globe News Center, and I know he's like in his 60s, but man, he can still play the keys like nobody and sing amazing songs. and just had great excitement, great passion. And I was really grateful to be at the concert. I saw some of you there. But it was also grateful to be there because he actually sang one of my favorite songs. It's called Never Been Unloved. It's a great song. You might look it up later. But here, just listen to some of the lyrics of this song. He says, I have been unfaithful, I have been unworthy, I have been unrighteous, and I have been unmerciful. Unaware, I have been unfair, I've been unfit for blessings from above, but even I can see the sacrifice you made for me to show that I've never been unloved. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news of the Christmas story. That God doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, he, he becomes one of us to communicate to us so clearly just how much he loves us that he wants to be with us. That he wants to offer us living water that will spring up into eternal life as we come to him in faith. The Holy Spirit takes residence in our lives and we are no longer slaves to sin. We can live as slaves to righteousness, guided by the Spirit, bearing the fruits of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and and self-control as we're Spirit-led. As the love of God flows through us to others. That's exactly what happens to this Samaritan woman at the well. Notice her response to Jesus' words. She goes back to the town where people were talking about her and gossiping about her. And she goes back to a town where she despised the, the way they treated her. And she goes back to the town and says, come and see. Come and see this man who knows everything about me and about you. And he loves us anyway. Come and see. Who will you invite to join us this Christmas? To say, come and see. Come and see this Christmas Eve. Come and see that person. Come and see this man who who knows everything about us and he loves us anyway. For he's shown us the full extent of his love. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf, so that we know that sin and death don't have the final say for those who call upon the name of the Lord, that we can live in a a new life, drinking the living water of the Holy Spirit that that shines and flows into eternal life, that we might be a light of his love wherever we go. It's the only response to the words of Jesus. The only appropriate response to the words of Jesus is to to come in faith, to share this love The love of Jesus compels us to share that love with others through both word and deed. Who will you invite this Christmas to invite us, to invite to come and see? Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you, Lord, for the powerful testimony of this Samaritan woman who had experienced your grace firsthand. You offered her living water, even though you knew everything about her and you made that known to her. But you didn't rescind that offer. No, you, you continued to reach out to her and, and she could see that you revealed to her that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Savior of the world. And so in gratitude, she went back to the town compelled by your love to tell others about this man who, who told her everything she ever did and who loves us anyway. Lord, help us to be bold like this Samaritan woman was and inviting our friends and our coworkers and our classmates and our neighbors and our loved ones to join us this Christmas Eve to come, to come and see this man who knows everything about us and he loves us anyway. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.